As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 27 of The Bowery Boys, Radio City Music Hall and The Rockettes. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And we are, once again, we are the Bowery Boys. We are. And Tom's back. Thank you. Just in time to celebrate... Christmas in New York City. We don't normally date our podcast, you may have noticed, but no. we can't get around this Christmas thing. We we caught it, didn't we? We're uh, you know you get, you get the Christmas fever. No, there's nothing like Christmas in New York, and especially the centerpiece of it, Radio City Music Hall and their Christmas spectacular, and those wacky long-legged rockets, high-kicking, <laughs> tap-dancing rockets. So we've got a lot of fun little details of all of those things for you. It's uh, and this. This is not a paid advertorial, by the way. We are telling the backstory of Radio City Music Hall. Oh, we're telling some details they may not want you to know about Radio City Music Hall, the we're, creation of we're it. We're going to tell some details that our lawyers may not want you to know. <laughs> Stick around. We're going to Radio City. To situate the listener, yes. as it as it is, we are going to Radio City Music Hall, which is located on 6th Avenue in Midtown Manhattan between 50th and 51st. It is a cornerstone of the Rockefeller Center complex of office buildings. This is really the the showcase jewel, if you will, of the, of the center. Mm-hmm. It's probably New York's most famous theater, even though it's not on Broadway, but it's certainly the largest theater in town. And it's close enough. It's close enough, a couple blocks away. Uh, more than 300 million people have attended a show at Radio City Music Hall. And now, I mean, due to its sheer size, it, it hosts the big blockbuster shows, often broadcast on television, concerts, special events, and whatnot. But it's also been a place for live theater since it opened in 1933. It's where, I mean, every single person who comes through has to perform. You made it when you performed, like, there or Carnegie Hall. But yeah, so you basically I think we also it. said the same thing about the Apollo Theater in that <laughs> podcast. But I no, mean, you know, but they're all in You the, can make it all over. These are all legendary places. Yeah. So, in order to really jump into the history proper of Radio City, you know, Radio City is nestled in Rockefeller Center. Right. So, so I guess we have to talk about Rockefeller. So, let's Center. take a couple steps back here and let me talk really briefly about like what Rockefeller Center itself is. So, that land basically, you know, from 48th to 51st Street between 5th and 6th Avenues mm. in the 19th century it was a botanical garden like if you can just imagine where that is like in like 
like Radio City was a was a garden, and then later, of course, it was built up and it was actually called the Speakeasy Belt because there were all of these bars during Prohibition, I wow. mean, like hundreds of them just in that neighborhood. So Columbia University owned the land mm-hmm. proper. Uh, they, of course, had their uh, their campus up on Morningside Heights by the time that they leased the land to J.D. Rockefeller. Because they moved up in 1897. Yes. Now, Rockefeller had originally planned to clear it all away and build a new home for the Met Opera. Right. But then decided, sort of after sort of buttering them up, that he wanted to turn it into a complex of office buildings and a commercial space, so, you know, make it a centerpiece of Midtown. The primary tenant of his new center would eventually be... The Radio Corporation of America, also called RCA. RCA, right. In fact, the name Radio City comes from the tenant. Uh-huh. So obviously with RCA being in the broadcasting business and the performing business, they would need a central performance hall, and it would ha- need to be the biggest in the city, being that we're talking about J.D. Rockefeller. And RCA, we should note, was also building the radio broadcast studios for NBC, which was, of course, the radio corporation. I mean, it was a radio yes, broadcast channel at the time in Rockefeller Center. And if you go by today and see the NBC studios, oh, they're today's still... Today's show, and yeah. I mean, and they're called the Radio City Studios. And they're still there. They're still the tenant. Uh, as a matter of fact, I should mention, by the way, that Columbia doesn't actually own the land anymore. They were leasing it. And then in 1985, they actually did eventually sell it to Rockefeller Group for $400 million. million. So we've got Rockefeller Center. We have the office buildings, those tenants. We have RCA building radio studios mm-hmm. in Rockefeller Center. Yes. And we have Rockefeller himself, John D., wanting to have a very large performance space as part of the complex. The, uh, the best in the city, the best in the world. The, as his cornerstone to the entire thing. Right. So th- where do we go from there? How does, who does he well, find? Who is he going to call? If you want to build the best theater in the world and it's, you know, it's the early 30s, who are you going to call? There's one person in the Tell world me who. you call. His name, and he's the most one of the most colorful characters we'll confront here on the podcast, S.R. Rothafel. However, Rothafel. everyone knows him as Roxy. That's his childhood nickname. Yeah. So Roxy. The Roxy? <laughs> the Roxy. Roxy was one of the big showmen of the late 1920s, early 30s. Mm-hmm. He was originally from Forest City, Pennsylvania. Starting there, he created movie houses for the silent film era. But they weren't just movie houses. It was like living movie interactive experiences. Wow. He had live acts between the shows. You know, while they would change the reels, it's like, why not have a show? He would bring in music during the movies. He would actually help innovate this. Most movies during the silent film era had would have like very dramatic music of different styles sometimes have even orchestras. But so, this was common at the time to have, you know... It was, but not the way he was doing it. He was he was taking everything and just ramping it up way over the top. Wow. Uh, so he was... Ba- so based on his fame, he warmed his way all the way through the United States uh, and opened all these big houses. So naturally, he's going to end up in New York. And even here in New York, he... Basically, he worked for short times in all the big theaters at the time, kind of reinventing the movie experience. He worked at the Strand, the Rialto, the Capitol, the, the Rivoli, and was a master of publicity stunts. He also had a radio show on WEAF, which was soon to be owned by NBC. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a little tie in here, mm-hmm. just so you know. Eventually, he would own his own theater called the Roxy Theater. And that's at 7th and 50th Street. And he, he christened this the Cathedral of Motion Pictures. It had six box offices. And 
almost 6,000 seats. Now, this is not to be confused, by the way. A little bit later, we're going to tell you about another theater that was actually owned by the Rockefeller Center Complex called the RKO Roxy. The RKO Roxy is a different theater than this Roxy. And as a matter of fact, this Roxy, the original one, sued the RKO Roxy, and they had to change their name to the Center Theater. So Roxy, I, I, I think everybody identifies the name Roxy with theaters, and yes. I never realized that until we were doing work on this podcast that there was actually a man behind a man. the name. Well, because he, well, unfortunately, which we'll tell you about in a little bit, his uh, reputation was a bit tarnished a little bit later. But at this time, he was the, the go-to man if you're going to open a theater. So naturally, if Rockefeller calls and says, hey, I'm opening the biggest theater in the world. He calls Roxy. So he was actually at his own theater for about all of six months before he then uh, popped on over to Rockefeller. So anyway... So, so we've got Roxy who's going to produce the theater. He's gonna, he's, yeah, he's going to sweep in. Manage it. Correct. Who are some of the... Uh, there's a, there's a, a few central designers of the whole place. A lot of different people Well, anybody... Right, who's been to Radio City Music Hall, and I'm just assuming that many of our listeners have been there. Or they've seen it on TV. Or they've seen times. it on TV. You know that it's impressive when you walk in the design of the place. The Art Deco style is really awe-inspiring, we could say. It's one of the, it's a classic example of Art Deco. I know it seems that we say that all the time, but this, <laughs> this, in this case, I mean, the, the, well, this, the, the yeah, lobby's breathtaking. This is decked out, we could say, yeah. At the time, the, the if you think back to the grand motion picture palaces that were being built at the time, and even the theaters of Broadway when you walk around, the design inside tends to be that kind of Rococo, Beaux-Arts, florid, very, yeah, gaudy, very florid, all over there. the top. The motif is dripping down the walls and off of the ceiling. It, it competes with the movie almost. Right, or the, or the stage show. show. Yeah, right. But that is not the style that you will see at Radio City Music Hall. Right. Instead, what you have is sleek, modern, art deco mm-hmm. motion inside. That is the style that the interior designer, Donald Desky, went uh-huh, for, the sure. art deco style. He wasn't that well known at the time, and I think that he, he had some fights with Roxy over this style, because oh, sure. Roxy wanted to continue on in that Rococo style. Do you know, by the way, how he got hired for the job? This is like, this is the best story. Have you, you heard the story? No. Okay, so they have they actually had a competition to see who would get the main job of designing these interiors. You know, he did he didn't have as much experience as the, of the other designers. Right. He wasn't that well known. He was he was like a carpet and furniture designer. So right. So what he so you know all the other design firms brought in proposals. He went so over the top. He had like literally over a hundred scale drawings. He had f- like forty mock ups of just various elements of the interior. He would have fabric and floor covering samples. On the morning of going in to, pr- to prepare to, to present, and he was pr- presenting to J.D. Rockefeller. He was presenting to Roxy. So he goes in. On the way in, he goes and he has like a pastry. As one at the does. deli, as sure. we all do. But he is horribly allergic to nuts, Brazil nuts in this particular case. So he starts to like swell up and feel all this pain. I mean, like on the big, most important day of his life. Okay, we've all had had this nightmare, right? He goes and gets a shot of adrenaline. Adrenaline. Because to get, yes. Okay. That's what they did back then. They gave you a big shot of adrenaline. He goes in and then for three and a half hours presents all of these, like, you know, like swaths and papers, like flying around and blueprints and everything. And he's like, you know, going crazy, jacked up on adrenaline for three and a half hours in front of like the richest man in the city. And so 
How could they not give him the job? He was a complete creative spaz. <laughs> they must have. They must not have known what to do with him. So anyway, one he, he used that right. Yes. He he applied that energy to design over thirty spaces inside the theater, including eight lounges, smoking rooms. You know, each all these rooms had their own theme, and he worked with all manner of different artists. A lot of them, by the way, were sort of recommended mm. by J.D. Rockefeller's wife Abby, who of course had just opened the Museum of Modern Art uptown and oh that old thing and she had actually just had a show of some new artists and some of them actually designed some of the pieces that ended up in radio city one of them who did not but who had signed a contract was georgia o'keefe and she was all ready to go she was going to design a mural in the ladies room right georgia o'keefe ladies room imagine it would have been kind of fabulous well they always Um, have flowers in the bathroom however i mean at this time she was really becoming a very well-known artist her husband who was a bit of a control freak if you know her bio at all squabbled about how much money that she was going to get she just simply wasn't getting enough he demanded three times as much money eventually by the the time they had it all sorted out because she really wanted to do it uh she had like no time to finish it she went in she started it and she basically left and had a nervous breakdown and quit So, On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Well, Desky was notable in bringing together all kinds of different materials. He brought together glass, aluminum, chrome, but he also used some unconventional materials like aluminum foil, mm-hmm. uh, bakelite. I mean, he wasn't afraid to experiment with things, and he was familiar with these because he was developing other kinds He's of products product and furniture design and right. furniture. He would actually go on uh, in his later career to work at Procter and Gamble and designed some packaging that truly has become <laughs> iconic in the American supermarket. What? Oh, no, I can't. What is it? Are you ready for yes. this? Because this is good. This same Mandesky designed the packaging and the logo for Crest toothpaste. You're, really? You know it? Yes, of course. I might have some in the bathroom. Uh, Cheer, an Oxidol okay, d- uh-huh. detergent. Prell shampoo. Mm-hmm. Jif peanut butter. So he designed all the. So he's actually much Pampers more known. diapers. He's much more known as a product designer. Bounty I mean, paper towels. These, I mean, we can't live our lives without these things, without my bounty. Yep. We should mention really quickly that there were obviously other architects that worked on Radio City Music Hall. There was, of course, 
Wallace Harrison, the family architect of the Rockefellers. Oh, you may, right. You may yeah, we were just that, talking about him. Remember that guy's name from the United Nations podcast? He was sort of the head of the cadre of international architects. I think we had a laugh over the fact that the Rockefeller family had their own oh, yes, exactly. architect. And there was staff. another man by the name of Edward Durrell Stone. Right. Um, who, des- who designed the exterior and some structural design Well, I'd hope it. that Stone ex- <laughs> <laughs> designed yes. the exterior well but his story isn't quite so joyful as the others unfortunately stone well stone was working while he was working on the radio city building he was also working on a residence like doing design for someone another house okay roxy found out that he was taking two salaries and fired him fired him on christmas eve just like literally yes. a few days before the opening and he was not invited to the opening of his, the building in which he helped design what a scrooge <laughs> this roxy complex human being so okay so but then there is another designer that we need to mention his name is peter clark because he really gives radio city what it's known for and that's the stage no this really is the stage to end all stages mm-hmm. anybody again who's seen the Christmas Spectacular knows that there are truly unconventional things that happen on the stage. For instance, you'll be watching the show and all of a sudden the band floats forward. Mm -hmm. Or all of a sudden from out of nowhere there are ice skaters skating around in the middle of the stage and they're (laughs) moving. The entire rink is moving. How is this possible? Well, it's possible because of the stage that he designed on different levels. Three different levels that worked on a hydraulic lift that could go up and down in and out, back and forth, and uh, and basically make very quick scene changes possible and special effects possible. And the system still works today. It was run by a mechanical box back in the day. Now it's run by a computer system, though the mechanics are still sound, uh, just as he installed it back in really? 1932. It was so prized, in fact, that during World War II, According to Radio City Music historian and lore, uh, there were even government agents who protected the backstage so that Nazis couldn't get in and study the mechanisms here because it was such an advanced system so of they hydraulic have lift. performances in Nazi Germany? Or, no, or? no, 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 no. The hydraulics involved oh, okay. <laughs> in moving it up. It was the same thing that would be used by the U.S. Air Force. They still use that today. And speaking of the stage mm-hmm. and the mobile band, yeah. I mean, literally, th- those musicians were jumping on that bandwagon because that was a portable stage that would propel the the orchestra around now isn't there an organ also it's not it's that's not on here is it is no it? the might there isn't just one uh-huh. organ you, i'm all worked up about this stage i'm sorry folks i'm not even looking at my notes at this point i'm just i'm freewheeling there are not one but two mighty Wurlitzers. oh and so there were two one on each side with a massive number 4410 pipes that were tucked away in small rooms that shoot up the side of the giant proscenium arch. So that that big arch for mm-hmm. the stage, the stage goes, it shoots up 60 feet and it's 100 feet wide. That is a big stage, 100 feet. The entire space inside the, the theater goes 160 feet from the back of the auditorium to the stage. And if you're not impressed by that, consider the fact that in between, you've got 6,000 seats. <laughs> So 
with all of this buildup that we've just told you of all this spectacular design, this amazing stage, all these people pulling, putting their heart and soul into it, the opening night must have been oh the my, most it must well, have been incredible, right? right? Things don't turn out exactly as you want them to. Well, what was on the bill? Well, on December twenty seventh, nineteen thirty two, was opening night. There was. Let's just say there was a lot on the bill. You had Walinda Acrobats. You had the Roxyettes, which we'll notice, which we'll mention in a minute. You had a comedy act by Ray Bolger, who would later go on to be the Scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz, which would play so a huge Broadway yeah, star. Of course, yes. Martha Graham ballet troupe would have a performance there would be some excerpts from the opera carmen there would be Asian this is all happening the same night vaudeville actually do you see where i'm coming at the show was five hours long it went until almost two in the morning oh, in the you're not serious Yes. You're not confusing that Roxy, with the Roxy, the dance club? Roxy, to- <laughs> Roxy packed on so many variety acts because they, they just wanted the biggest show ever that he literally exhausted the audience. Half of them left at intermission because it was just too much. Roxy himself even collapsed yeah. uh, when he saw what was happening. J.D. Rockefeller basically hung out in the foyer and talked to people. I mean, this is probably one of the notorious opening nights in history. As a matter of fa- as a matter of fact, it was so ba- it was so awful that Roxy was then immediately removed as manager and it was closed within days and reopened on January 11th, 1933 as a combination of motion pictures to show films and stage. In a way, it, we should in the long run sort of thank them for being a failure because Radio City as a movie house mm. has brought us a lot of amazing films because what would happen is they would exclusively run there and they would sometimes only show certain films at Radio City and at this other Archeo Roxy, which I told you about earlier, right. which was part of the Rockefeller Center. Anyway, the very first film that they showed was called The Bitter Tea of General Yen. They would show until they stopped showing movies there in 1979. That's a long time. They showed almost 700 films, most of them very significant exclusive premieres, including Breakfast at Tiffany's, White Christmas, To Kill a Mockingbird, and I think the best known one, King Kong. As a matter oh, yeah. of fact, King Kong, playing just at Radio City and at Archeo Roxy, made $1.7 million. Way back then. Way back then. That is a lot of money. So, Tom, we've talked about the famous films that have been there. We've talked about the infamous opening nights that have been on the stage. We have danced around, of course, the biggest star of the Radio City Music Hall stage. I see where this is going. And that would be the line of lovely, beautiful, high-kicking Rockyettes. Right, with the the Rockyettes. The (laughs) Roxyettes. Right, those Roxyettes that you talked about as being part, an integral part of the opening night's performance. Yes, but they're they're not even from New York. Tom, take us, give us a little short history. I guess the shortest history is that the, the Rockettes, and we're talking about the precision dance troupe known today yes. as the Rockettes. <laughs> the precision dance troupe. Yes, 36 long-legged dancers uh, between the the heights of 5 foot 6 and 5 foot 10 and a half. There used to only be 16, and uh-huh. now now there are 36 of them, and they're arranged from shortest to tallest in the middle to give this Very kind specific of... specific heights, too. That's well, there's a range there, actually, right. of like 4 and a half inches, but they're arranged in a way that you can't tell that they're of different heights. 
clever, isn't oh, it? Oh, right, because it's an optical illusion, right? It's, a, it's an illusion. Gotcha. Right. So they perform five shows a day when they're performing, mm-hmm. seven days a week for however lo- long the show goes on. What, eight weeks? Yes. Or whatever. Nine, that is a lot of work. Well, yeah, they have to be really, I mean, they have to be strong, athletic, and they don't get any sleep, I'm sure. Yeah. And Greg, you're going to love this. The group itself was founded in 1925 in, are you ready? Mm-hmm. Missouri. Wow, that's my home state. Exactly. Where, where, where exactly is there? They're from St. Louis. Well, St. Yes, that make that would make sense. Yes, the, their leader Russell Markert uh, founded them. He based the troupe actually on an English dance troupe called the Tiller Girls, but he wanted something a little stronger, a little bit more, you know, American with more complicated Brawnier. tap numbers, yeah, sure. right? A little leggier. And so he f- he founded this troupe, brought them to New York. They were actually brought to New York by the, by Rothafel in 1927, and they debuted in his Roxy Theater um, on 50th and 7th as the Roxy Roxy as because they were Roxies, right? right. They were Roxy's troupe, and, and uh, yeah. then they were brought to Radio City Musical for the opening night. And I'm assuming they changed their name, of course, because of, of course Roxy. Well, Roxy himself. fell on a stretcher, out of fashion, and they, <laughs> they yeah. were renamed the Rockettes. You know, because it's a better bet, I guess, to base the name on Rockefeller than Roxy. Now, is this true? I actually heard that they they're all <laughs> yes. like. All, Lines and lines and lines and lines of white women, and that they actually didn't hire like African Americans until like the eighties. Nineteen eighty-seven. This is perhaps this yes, a a bit of a tarnish on the. This isn't in the brochure. Let's just say they claimed that that they had held off on hiring anybody. African American because it would disrupt the uniformity and the consistency of the look. You can see the Rockettes now, though, in what is called the Christmas Spectacular. But at the time, they were just debuting in between films because, as you'll recall, it was a film house all the way up to 1979. Mm hmm. Well, the Christmas Spectacular itself actually began in between films. Did you know that? In 1933, what they called a... It was more like a Christmas interlude. And it was between films. And it was only two sketches or two little dioramas. One of them was The Living Nativity... Yes. Living Nativity, and the other one was called The Parade of the Wooden Soldiers. Okay. I think everyone knows that one. Well, they both all of them. Over on yeah, the side. they're both still very integral. And they're integral. both in the show, exactly. And so it was only it was a very small interlude between films. And now, of course, it's ex- in 1979, they expanded it to a full 90-minute extravaganza. And that's, of course, the same year where they phased out the movies. But today, I mean, like, it's this multi- uh, dimensional, <laughs> lavish. lavish, like total spectacle with animals and and three D effects and ice skaters and children. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty incredible. And of course, the Rockettes who were coming out on you know different stages because of course we have those that many layered stage mm-hmm. in process. We have the band floating around, the orchestra floating around. We have ice skaters in Rockefeller Center. There's a whole thing with Santa flying around. On oh his right, sled. of course, throwing out the gifts. Yep. By the way, this is the I, I'm sure everyone knows this, but this is the 75th anniversary of the Christmas spectacular. But really, it's of the first two sketches. I mean, the spectacular started in 79, but the first time that these Christmas was on the Radio City stage right. was 75 years so, ago. But this would actually be, truly, the 75th anniversary of the, the Wooden Soldiers routine. Yes, and the living nativity. A million visitors per year go to see the Christmas spectacular. It's the, the most watched live show in the United States, which isn't 
about surprising it even tours now and goes right. to several since nineteen ninety four it's been on the road at Christmas time. Radio City Music Hall is up and running. We didn't tell you about its later life though, because it did have a small patch there where it might have closed. Isn't that correct? Well, I feel like we say this in every podcast, but again, during the nineteen seventies. Because it happens in the nineteen seventies. Yeah, yeah. Things were getting a little bit difficult in many parts of the city including at Radio City Music Hall, tastes were changing. As a film venue, they had a uh, preference to only show G-rated films, family films. Those became a little bit more difficult to find <laughs> well, that's as the well. Well, 70s, like Taxi Driver, you're not going to have, yeah. No, and the place was showing the wear and tear of, you know, about 40 years in operation. There was thought of ripping the whole thing down, but wow. it was granted... Landmark status in 1978, and thus, uh, you know, preservation was ensured. They did have another huge renovation in 1999, where it was not so much rebuilding things, but it was just to make it look like it did when it first opened. So they which, repl- for which they basically had to rip the whole thing down and put it back together. But they ha- but they replaced it with they went like literally to archives of like the right. city archives to find out what the original floor coverings were, what the original upholsteries were. I mean, like, very detail-oriented. And the only thing they really took liberties with were the lighting, which they used a little bit more cost-efficient lighting. And, of course, you know, sounds and computers were brought in. But um, right. everything else is almost exactly the same as it was when they built it in, you know, 1932. When and they spent in. $70 million on the renovation in 99, which was the same amount, practically the same amount that was spent constructing it. What's so sad, though, is, you know, the only the only person who really didn't get to benefit from this is our old Stone. pal Roxwell Stone. Oh. And then, of course... Roxy, he ends up. I mean, basically, this is this was the the top of his career, and he failed. You're the top. He gets a line, doesn't he? He gets a line in Cold well, Porter. Well, his old yeah, his old theater, the Roxy Theater. He is mentioned in the song. The um, he died four he died four years after the opening of Radio City Music Hall. He never really got to reach that level again. But without him, we wouldn't have this beautiful building. And there's been so many amazing performers that have been through it, as you know. So since 1979 and the renovation work, it's, it has shifted gears into a performance space for lavish spectacles be, you know, outside of the Christmas Spectacular. During the rest of the year, it's a place where you can see major concerts. I've seen a couple concerts there, live events, even sporting events started a couple years yeah, back. Well, I mean, award shows, MTV and the Tonys, the Daytime Emmys, the, the Grammys. Grammys have been there. I mean, if you've got little kitties, you've probably been there to see Barney or Sesame Street Live, Blues Clues, and um, even President Clinton had uh, like a birthday bash there. There was he even had That's a right. fundraiser there. And right. With Al Gore, mm-hmm. and they still do debut films there. As a matter of fact, I went forget. to the I went to the uh, premiere. Don't ask why. Yeah. I went to the premiere at Radio City Music Hall. The movie Ice Age. And I saw, I saw the stars there. I just said, don't ask. But it was like, and it was it was the first time. And this is embarrassing, but that was the first time I'd ever been inside the Radio City Music Hall, and it blew me away. It was so breathtaking, and just the fact, you know. Such glamorous stars like Ray Romano. You know, I you know (laughs) took my breath away. You know, I think you could say that it's the only theater that doesn't need a show. That is what they say about it. Well, okay, I totally stole that line. (laughs) Well, anyway, um, thank you for dancing through the history of New York's most famous theater with us. We hope you've enjoyed our look back into the history of Radio City, and for bearing with us as we ripped through decades, (laughs) pages, and pages of. 
of history. Uh, we wanted to uh, let you know that uh, check out the blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. It will be sort of intermittently updated during the holidays, but you'll be surprised. It'll probably have some new interesting stuff on there. So just check it out whenever you can. And you can always email us, too, your comments, suggestions, corrections. Our emails are posted on the website, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. And we also just wanted to say, as it is, this is our holiday episode that we wanted to wish all of you out there. I wanted to wish Tom a very happy holidays. And uh, Thank you, Greg. I'd like to wish you a happy (laughs) holiday, too. We'd like to thank our listeners, too, who have been writing into us. And thank you to everybody who's just been listening. It's been an incredible six months so far. Yeah, and it's absolutely amazing. This isn't the last... We will have a a short podcast next week, but this is our last, last big one for the year. So thanks for supporting us, and We've got a lot of great stuff coming up in 2008. And if you're listening to this in 2008, thanks for putting up with all of our (laughs) holiday cheer and greetings. Exactly. So thanks for listening and have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.